Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week, <laughs> you're so excited about you being Chris. I sure am. <laughs> and this week, we're continuing with our read-through of The Hunger Games, and we're looking at chapters 22 through 24. So Chris, can you give us a recap of what happens in these chapters? I sure can. Thanks for asking. <laughs> so Katniss wakes up to find that Peeta is feeling better, and now he takes care of her while she's injured. She tells him everything that's happened, and we see the differences in their perspectives and feelings on a number of things. The mood turns romantic as Katniss knows that they'll get food the more that they show. Ooh. Ooh. After Peeta tells the story of how he fell for her, she wonders for the first time if his feelings might be genuine. But she goes along with it, and they get a feast from the sponsors. They talk about Hamish as they slowly eat the food, and then discover Thresh has been killed. After the rain lets up, they go hunting, but Peeta is too loud, so they separate. Katniss is worried when he doesn't respond to her call, but they find out when they reunite that Foxface died from eating poisonous berries that Peeta had gathered. With Cato as their final opponent, they keep watch, and the next day discover that all the water has been dried up, pushing them towards the lake, where they wait for Cato, and he eventually comes running out of the woods, chased by a pack of creatures. Again, a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on, and all that gooey romance happening. Your favorite. My favorite. So, why don't we go into our striking moments section. What is something that you were noticing for the first time, or something that really stood out to you this time reading through? Yeah, one thing was the moment where Katniss finds out that Thresh has been killed. She is feeling really upset, and she decides to tell Peeta that she wants to go home. And mm. she describes it as being seen by the audience as momentary weakness rather than a terminal weakness of her criticizing the capital itself. Mm. Because for her, she was thinking at the time that she doesn't want anyone else to die, which would be treasonous, which would be against the idea that the Hunger Games should exist. Thinking of the word murder. Exactly. I thought that that was interesting, and I, I think on this read-through, I, I noticed that this really seems to be the first time that she's noted personally that she doesn't want to see one of the other tributes die outside of Rue. Mm -hmm. But it's been clear throughout the book that she thinks the Hunger Games are awful, that these are barbaric rituals of the sacrifice of children. But I think this is the first time I've seen her express that she doesn't want the other tributes who she is competing against to die. And considering that Cato is still out there, who mm -hmm. has been trying to catch and kill her this whole time, you know, that that's significant. Absolutely, yeah. And I think this is the first glimpse of her starting to become much more empathetic towards Cato, even though she also in the same chapters thinks of him as, you know, the one true enemy in a way. I think she's also starting to understand more about how they're in a similar situation that is unjust. Or, or not to understand it, but to put it into thought in a way that she hadn't really before. Totally, because I think even with Marvel, the boy from District 1, she thought about his death after the fact. And are there people grieving for him back home in District 1? Mm -hmm. And then tried to distance herself from those thoughts and feelings by being like, well, he killed Rue and, and still being 
angry about that and and devastated over that, which makes sense. But yeah, I, I think for her, compassion is always kind of hovering there mm. and she tries to distance herself from it. And she's been so focused on survival up till this point that deaths and individual people dying have just been peripheral yeah. compared to everything else she's dealing with, whether it's burns or tracker jacker stings or finding PETA. And now it's to the point where she knows every person that's left in the games is either going to die so that she can live or she'll die. Whereas when there were a lot more tributes in the games, I think it probably felt different. Mm. It was just like, ah, oh, how do I survive? How do I keep going? But now they're in the home stretch of it's going to be one of us, five. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And a couple other moments that struck me too. One was her talking about how she really hoped that the moon was the same moon that she saw back in District 12 and mm. not something that was created by the game makers. And it really kind of hit home to me the extent to which they are unable to trust the reality that they're within. You know, this definitely, I think, hit me having recently rewatched the entire Matrix series in preparation <laughs> for Matrix yeah. Resurrections because it deals so much similar with, you know, what is reality. But it just became kind of a moment where I realized there's another thing that the capital takes away from these tributes, which is just a, a grounding in an environment that they can make sense of or that they can understand. Mm -hmm. um, everything is at the whims of the game makers, even the existence of celestial bodies like the moon. Yeah, their time and space is at the whims of the game makers. Exactly. In addition to their lives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just the... I think it's a good example of the ways that this is a kind of futuristic dystopia where it is they do have a high extent of technological prowess. They have these advancements compared to where we are in society, but they're used in these awful ways. Mm -hmm. We don't see them being used to... For good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, to help their society. We see it as new forms of exploitation and oppression. Definitely, yeah. And the last one I thought was just fun was how Katniss notices after they went, they've been hunting that she's been pretty mean to PETA all day. <laughs> uh, which I thought was, was funny. But I, I appreciate that before and after that, the language that she uses to describe PETA and their journey is still pretty biting you know it's still we start moving back towards the cave crashing, crashing really. i should say right like it's still pretty like there's clearly some frustration annoyance there, there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even after she's recognized like oh maybe i've been too mean <laughs> um, which i just thought is is really great writing another great example of how her narration is really well done in these books Definitely. because we're very much within her mindset, even in the language she used to describe that, because I've certainly have been in conditions where my own inner monologue is maybe using language that I wouldn't say out loud or <laughs> that's a little bit more frustrated. And so, yeah, it, it's just a, a cool added element I think I saw in that narration, this read through. Yeah, that's completely true, because I think something that Collins is able to capture with Katniss as the narrator is more of the 
trauma and turmoil and anxiety that tributes would be riddled with mm. during the games, but also it's able to lend itself to humor in a way that if it was a different narrator, if it wasn't Katniss, it was some omniscient, yeah. it, it would hit differently. Totally. And it helps reveal more of her character. Absolutely, yeah. But what, what moment struck you during this read-through? Yeah, there were a lot of things, actually, so I'll try to go through them semi-quickly. So one is just when Peta tosses the fork over his shoulder and licks his plate clean, <laughs> and they're teasing Effie. Even Katniss is like, Cato could be right outside the cave, but she's still laughing at it, you mm -hmm. know? And it just kind of solidifies my new headcanon of when Peta was like really fell for Katniss on the train of her doing this <laughs> because he's bringing it back to this moment, mm -hmm. you know? So that's just a little fun. Something that shows that you were right? Yeah, I, yeah. I can see why you would like that. Super fun. I love it. <laughs> also, something I was thinking about is the language of the games that is so ingrained in everyone in Panem. Because Katniss tells Peta about Foxface, she's your kill, not mm. Kato's. And that language is so embedded in the games and this system and like how it, it was just really fascinating to me how the games have influenced language and even how they talk about something. And you think of it more almost in a video game sense Absolutely. of yeah, whose kills belong to who because they've grown up seeing these stats posted publicly on these broadcasts of who's killing who and who has the most and obviously betting and things like that are affected by it. But even the people in the districts who are not betting on these things, I mean, or they are privately mm -hmm. <laughs> just within their district. They're still saturated yeah, in, in that the, perspective. In the stats at the end, in, yeah, totally. And how that language tries to distance the capital from these actions mm -hmm. as well. Of course, it's not Peta's kill. It's the capital's kill yeah. because they're forcing all these kids to be in there. And not only that, they're forcing all these kids to be in this arena, in an arena they designed where there are these poisonous berry bushes mm -hmm. purposefully, right? And so, yeah, it was just, it, it kind of struck me a different way that Katniss, even her language, she's adopted this. It's just, yeah, how, how people talk about these things. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking about is how Katniss really started having PTSD symptoms within the games themselves. Because one of the symptoms of PTSD is to have a severe emotional distress or physical reactions mm. to something that reminds you of a traumatic event. And here she is trembling because PETA doesn't return the whistle that they had set up. Mm. And she she doesn't see him and she thinks that he's been killed even though she hasn't heard a cannon fire right it's just automatically where her mind is going and her body is physically reacting to that and she is under so much distress because it's reminding her of when rue didn't return the call and seeing 
this person, this little kid she cared about die in front of her. And so it's only been a couple days and she's already having those physical and, you know, psychological reactions to this. So true, yeah. Yeah, which isn't something that I thought about as much in previous read-throughs. Yeah, and I think it also helps to explain her anxiety when talking to PETA and saying, you have to answer, mm-hmm. you know, and, and him not understanding completely. Not that he's argumentative with her, but he just doesn't know because he's not experiencing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, another thing I was thinking about is just that Fox Face actually did die because of hunger. Mm. And how rare that is in the games that we've seen them. I mean, they're called the Hunger Games because that's how it started out. That is the origin story of why these games are happening. And According to the Bell Songbirds and Snakes, yeah. Of course, and according to the Capitals' narrative about these things. Totally. But in the actual games themselves, they've gotten to be so, like, over the years, they've gotten to be so much more combative, where people, yeah, the careers are literally going out at night hunting mm-hmm. other tributes. So I, I think to actually see a tribute die because of hunger is probably rare at that point. And Katniss is looking at her body being lifted up from the hovercraft, and the words are her emaciated body. Mm. She took the risk to eat these berries because she was starving to death. And so, yeah, that, that just struck me this time. And lastly, something that I noticed in chapter 24, so it's, it's all leading up to this final confrontation. Something that I had never picked up on previously is that there's almost tributes to the other tributes whose death Katniss has had some interaction with. Because the leather pouch of the boy from District 1 is mentioned when she's putting the berries in it. She lights a fire. That's what the District 8 kid had done. And then Katniss used the remnants of that fire to cook her first meal in the games. Mm-hmm. She thinks about Cato and his strength to break the neck of the boy from District 3. And how strong he must be to overpower Thresh, who mm-hmm. is also very physically strong. And then there's the remnants of the Tracker Jacker nest which the girl from District 4 and also Glimmer died from. Mm-hmm. And then they're going and they check the cornucopia just to make sure that Cato isn't pulling a fox face, right, of, of hiding in there. And Peta is using or has with him a knife that, I mean, sure, I guess could be the boyfriend district ones mm. because she did find some knives on him but we associate knives with clove then before a little bit before Cato comes running out of the trees Katniss is interacting with the Mockingjays which we would associate with Rue so yeah I don't know I just I started picking up on a couple of them and then I went back to reread that chapter to see if there were other little moments that would make us think of other tributes that have died um and there were so i thought 
that was really interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. I never picked up on that, but that's a really cool reading of those events. You know, Katniss even subconsciously being reminded of what has happened to her in the games and and especially what's happened to the other people she's encountered in the games. Mm. Yeah. Even if the reader doesn't notice, like, you and I for most of the time we've read these books, right? I notice very few things, yes. (laughs) Still, Suzanne Collins is potentially putting in an acknowledgement, a, you know, like what Katniss wanted to do for Rue to give her this burial, to give her this respect and... Acknowledgement of their personhood. Exactly. And I feel like Suzanne Collins was doing that a little bit here in this chapter. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. But should we move into from another point of view where we look at scenes or things that are happening in these chapters from a view other than Katniss's? What do you have? Well, I have a couple from Peta's point of view. (laughs) Naturally. One is... It kind of made me start thinking at one point when Katniss was really being strategic about what she could and couldn't say mm. when she's talking to Peta, if Peta was doing the same. Like, I was wondering to the extent to which Peta was himself thinking, is the Capitol watching? Um, do we have to be careful with what we say? Because I know that if I was in his position, I could imagine myself at times probably thinking, you know, oh... They probably have more important things to film. They aren't going to be recording every conversation that we have. and that Yeah, we could... and I would be Katniss being like, they're recording everything we say. Exactly, yeah. She's such a strategic thinker. And I'm not saying Peta isn't, but I just, it made me wonder a little bit about to what extent he was thinking about those kinds of things too, because my reading of Peta here for sure is he's also very much caught up in the lovey-dovey stuff. <laughs> Which you would be. Which I also would be, yes. And I would be like, why is he kissing me? Like, we have <laughs> things to do. <laughs> there was a moment where she was like, ah, oh, she exasperated, like, exasperatedly extricated herself from him, you know? It's yes. like, that sounds like me and you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the same. <laughs> was there any specific thoughts you were thinking that he might be thinking? No, I, I think... I was kind of putting myself in, in his position of, of having less focused thoughts, of being distracted, frankly, um, mm. and being preoccupied with some other things that are happening and not worried about what it means to, yeah, have his parents find out about him kind of scoffing at them. Or sharing personal information, mm-hmm. like his about his father, totally loving Candace's mom. Yeah, or information about Rue, or or you know all these other kinds of elements. Or was he strategically giving that information so that people in the capital would swoon over it, like, oh, her mother and his father didn't mm-hmm. get to be together, so they should, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be very strategic too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that that one very much, like, it could have been a wonderment uh, because mm. it was very much unsure. I will say, though, the one thing I was really curious about was Peta hearing Katniss tell him everything that she went through in the games, mm. and especially with Rue. You know, we were talking in the episode where Rue dies about Katniss thinking about how much she wanted to tell Peta about the flower arrangement. 
I, I guess I, I really would love to have heard the conversation between Katniss and Peeta about that and see how he responds, because I could imagine Peeta being really moved by hearing these things. Um, not only moved because of its just essential beauty and the humanity within it and the compassion, but also moved because he's hearing the person who he cares about talk about something that's so painful, such a painful and powerful moment for her. Mm -hmm. And her sharing that with him and her being vulnerable in that extent with him uh, in a way that Katniss very rarely is. I could imagine that, you know, Katniss doesn't really, she kind of blows through it because it's all things that happen to her. You know, and the, the, the book, it basically has, she tells him about everything. But for him, I can imagine this being a really momentous occasion. Um, this being something that's a powerful moment for him in this part of the games. So yeah, it, I really would have loved to have heard what he was thinking and how he was receiving that information. Just imagine him being like, she trusts me enough to <laughs> confide in me. I mean, yeah, yeah, to an extent. <laughs> what about you? What piezo V did you want to talk about? Oh, why are you saying it that way? <laughs> yeah, so I was thinking about Haymitch kind of having this cloud of depression come over him mm. as he's listening to Katniss and Peeta talk about living in Victor's village and going home and having birthdays and picnics and stories by the fire with him and him just knowing that it can't be like that you know mm. just knowing that they're gonna have trauma that's gonna follow them if they get out just like it followed him, but also at the same time kind of wondering what it could have been like for him if he had been able to grow up with a victor from his same games with him. Even if it wasn't from his same games, because this is a new thing they've done. Just any other person in the whole of his district that could relate or understand what he's been through because there hasn't been anyone yeah he's been completely alone for the past 24 years this chapter did also make me wonder similarly whether he had a mentor and what that relationship was like and if losing that mentor was in and of itself a blow to him after already experiencing the hunger games Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i don't know if he had one or not but I don't know, I was kind of wondering if him thinking that there's a chance they could both come home from this and now there could be three of them as victors in District 12 instead of just him, maybe that will give him a tiny bit of hope, just mm. just a little bit. Obviously, they're going to have, if they both make it out, they're going to have to be mentors and that's a whole other traumatic experience but the fact that none of them would be completely alone in it anymore. And maybe he would want to try to be there for them mm -hmm. more if they make it out and try to help them cope. Mm -hmm. Even if that would be a little delusional considering his alcoholism and things like that. But if, if that's what he would want yeah. watching this scene before him. I was also thinking about 
Kato being alone in the games because up until Clove died, he always had at least one person, if not multiple people there with him. Yeah. And so I was just kind of imagining him sleeping, maybe even in the cornucopia somewhere that he could not be as cold because all of their supplies was blown up, right? And having a hard time falling asleep or, or being afraid to even fall asleep and him hearing the cannon go off when Foxface died and just being afraid and, and seeing the fire that they lit after that and him just going and hiding and him just trying to convince himself okay, I have this body armor, Peta is hurt, even though he's not dead yet, even though they got their item at the feast, whatever that was in that bag, but just him trying to kind of convince himself that he'll be okay, and him trying to not think about Clove, and just trying to think about the notoriety he'll get when he returns to his district, how proud his family will be of him and his friends. And so yeah, I was I was just kind of trying to go into his thought process a bit, despite me not liking Kato. <laughs> <laughs> um But I think that that's one of the valuable things about this segment mm-hmm. is yeah, you know, challenging yourself to think about those perspectives. And how human it all just becomes. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing, last perspective I was kind of thinking about was the loved ones of Foxface. Almost at home as they're watching this, being thankful that she died so quickly and not in some gory death. Mm. Because if you have to die in the games, how she died seems like one of the most peaceful ends you could think about. Unlike every other person that's died in this game, she didn't have the feeling of terror be her last emotion. Mm. And she didn't have the experience of having another person killing her. And so, yeah, I was just thinking about if even in the midst of them grieving, they're thankful for the way she went out instead of some bloody death especially if she has friends who are young if she has family siblings and everybody else in the community not having to see a violent death for her Mm -hmm. in the same way as most deaths are in the hunger games yeah so many of the things that could be seen as a blessing or as a as a, a mercy are just because the alternatives are so much, are so awful. Are so horrific yeah. that this, it could be a positive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But after 74 years of this, wouldn't that be the case? Yeah, absolutely. But why don't we move into our touch points? What is something that you're seeing happening in the games or in Pan Am that you also see kind of mirrored in our own world? Uh, well, this is one that, that we've kind of touched on already, but the naming of Thresh's death as murder mm. is such a powerful moment. And it shows the power of language and, and how calling something as murder or calling something as what it is can in of itself be a revolutionary act when 
society has pseudonyms. Labeled as a casualty. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, They have all of these other ways of describing it. Yeah, I mean, thinking of civilian casualties of war rather than murders that Mm -hmm. our country has done. And, And I think that that also really hits home is that many of these euphemisms for words like murder or torture Mm -hmm. are used because it's state violence specifically. Oh, it's not enhanced interrogation techniques? Exactly. Or unintended casualties or... Do you think the government's listening in to us because we disparage them in this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, But that's the thing is that, you know, I think that, that... State violence is so often the center of these euphemistic language. Mm-hmm. And The Hunger Games is state violence Absolutely. You know, at its core. And in particular, seeing Katniss use the language of murder in regards to the state violence against a black man is really prescient or is really powerful considering the ongoing racially based violence of the police in the United States, which has become more known in the mainstream due to the Black Lives Matters movement and, and those protests, but, you know, is a, very much a part of the history of policing in the United States uh, mm-hmm. since its inception. And so, yeah, I think that the language that we use for these kinds of things is so important. Uh, it reminds me of how I actually once myself got in trouble when I was developing a walking tour for <laughs> a community, and I used the term frontier justice to talk about a lynch mob, essentially. Mm -hmm. That term is such a loaded term, and it has so many connotations that are tied to ideas of white supremacy Mm -hmm. um, that it was a irresponsible word for me to use and a a huge learning moment moment for me. And you were kind of using it as this, this is what they call it, sarcastic way of looking at it. But without those quotation marks, yeah, and it in, can change. In, in yeah. the, the, the venue with which I was using it, I didn't have the opportunity to explain how I would really be critiquing the idea that this is justice mm-hmm. and highlighting the injustices that came along with it. But that's why the language that you use is so important, because mm-hmm. language can be so loaded. And why calling something a murder, that's a murder, um, or calling something that racially based violence that's racially based violence mm-hmm. um, is is so important. So yeah, so that was that was the main touch point that I really saw in these chapters. I did see one other thing that that I'm still unsure about uh, how how strong the connection is. But when Peta and Katniss are talking about how Thresh shared Katniss's perspective of of not wanting to owe someone. Oh yeah, I was thinking about this as well. Mm-hmm. And Katniss says. If you were from the seam, you would understand. And, I wouldn't have to explain it to yeah. you. Mm-hmm. And Peter gets kind of defensive. He he says, you know, no, then I guess I'm too dim to e- for you to even try to explain it to me. Mm-hmm. And while I can understand that defensiveness to an extent, reading through this time, I, I was critiquing a little bit more, and it kind of reminded me of ideas of things like white fragility. Absolutely. That's what I wrote down in my notes. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, what, what were your thoughts on that then? Yeah, well, I was thinking about class and race because in these chapters, I think it it stands out the most that it has thus far Mm -hmm. because of more direct ways that it's talked about. For example, 
Katniss saying, your family wouldn't be happy with you dating a girl from the seam, would Mm -hmm. they? And he's like, hardly, but I don't care what they think. And that's just an example of race classism, right? So there are terms where it's not just, oh, looking at class in a vacuum, looking at race in a vacuum, because these things don't exist in a vacuum in our society. They intersect. And so that's clear in District 12 that people from the seam look different than the people from the town. And that's why Katniss's mom, that's why Prim with their blonde hair, blue eyes, light skin, they are out of place in the seam with people with olive skin and dark hair and dark, you know, gray eyes. Yeah. And so I think that is a race classism or class racism issue and Peter's family clearly buys into that if Mm -hmm. they are if they wouldn't be happy with him being interested in a girl from the seam who is different ethnically racially and different socioeconomically than him and yeah I I was thinking that it does seem like white fragility on Peta's part that she's just saying like I don't expect you to understand you've always had enough mm-hmm. but if you lived in the seam I wouldn't have to explain this to you and him being defensive and saying that you know we won't even try clearly I'm too dim to get it but it's her just being tired mm-hmm. you know she's saved his life she's gone through all of this trauma herself she had trauma even before she entered the games and her just not wanting to explain to someone who yeah had to have still bread and which she didn't had, know yet she didn't know that yeah so from her view at the time someone who has had enough maybe not the greatest still oppressed by the capital still is in the games despite them being from the town but that just has no understanding of her lived experience or other people like her in the seam. And she's just tired and doesn't have to explain it to him. Mm-hmm. And him being defensive about it. And even when she finds out that, yeah, he's had to have stale bread. He, has, he doesn't get to enjoy all of the things that his family's bakery produces. That's for the richer people in the town. But even so, starvation was never an issue for him yeah. and his family like it is for most people, it seems, in the seam, if not all people in the seam. And so, yeah, I, I think that Peta is being a little, leaning into white fragility here. He is defensive and he's a little offended that she wouldn't, she would just assume that he doesn't understand Mm -hmm. or she wouldn't even want to explain so that he can try to understand. And, you know, if they had been in a relationship for a while, I can, I can see the, okay, can you try to explain it to me? Because there are certain things I don't know and I can't learn unless I know, Mm -hmm. especially in a situation like Penem in the districts, it's not like you can just Google something and learn something about it, you know? <laughs> he only has a certain amount of experience and resources that he can access. But yeah. also, it not being her responsibility to explain it to him because he doesn't understand it. Particularly as someone who is who in some ways benefits from those hierarchies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, I just, I thought that was interesting, um, especially coming from Peta, a character that I've loved for so long, mm-hmm. seeing, yeah, some of his shortcomings too, that he is not outside of the system that has raised him. And he has a lot to learn. It's best to not be defensive, but to take a posture of learning and understanding of, I would love to hear more about this, but if you don't have energy for this right now, that's okay. Yeah. And and I, I appreciate that too, because those are skills to be able to not be affected by your emotions, but to remain open and compassionate and prioritize the other person's experiences. Um, Those are things that I don't think come naturally to anyone and particularly don't come natural to people who society has always taught your 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 priority. Your experience Exactly. Um, And so, you know, it's something that I've certainly grown a lot in and probably still have more to grow within. So I think it's compelling representation to have Peta, yeah, a character who I consider very compassionate and empathetic and... Incredibly intelligent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But for him to also struggle with those things sometimes because that's one of the reasons those kinds of struggles are so widespread in our society. Absolutely. And that's the thing too. It doesn't mean that you are a bad person because you don't understand something outside of the experience you grew up with. It means that you should be open and learn so that you do have a better understanding. And yeah, like you said, I appreciate that she puts that in there with a character that has so many great qualities that he is not outside of his upbringing. He is not outside of the hierarchies that his society within his district, but also within Panem has set up, you know. Exactly, yeah. There was one other touch point that I was thinking of. This is kind of going the opposite way with Peta, <laughs> something to praise him for. I was thinking about toxic masculinity and how in these chapters, I think it's made very apparent that it's alive and well in Panem. Mm-hmm. So as, as we're going through and after they leave the cave, they're hunting and he's too loud and everything. <laughs> Thoughts are going through Katniss's mind. And, and something that back several, several chapters Katniss had thought was that she had assumed that Peta asked to be coached separately before their interviews took place because she got a better score than he mm. did. And then in, in this chapter, it's made clear that she's rethought that. She's thinking... Quote, Cato probably had a special hatred for me ever since I outscored him in training. A boy like Peta would simply shrug that off. It was not a leap at all for her to make from the beginning to assume that this was the reason behind Peta's actions. Mm-hmm. Because patriarchy. Yeah. And Toxic masculinity. Exactly. <laughs> But then as she's gotten to know him more, as she's interacted with him more, she's realized that, okay, that's not true of him, but she still assumes it of Cato. And, and I think it's probably much more, it would be much more likely true of Cato totally. than of Peta. Because Peta is the boy that shrugs that off. Him being like, I've got you to protect me now. Like, it doesn't matter if Cato is outside the cave like Mm -hmm. you're here to protect me and how anti 
machismo that is, you know, that he doesn't care that he's gathering while she's hunting. You know, he doesn't have any holdups about this. That he is affecting her hunting negatively. Like, I love when she is saying... I don't know she if lessens the blow a bit yeah. for her to be like, well, we're both really loud. Yeah. Uh, and then he's like, okay, this isn't working. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I think it makes total sense that that is her assumption mm-hmm. because that's been her interaction with most people probably in life. Then her being able to interact with Peta and seeing that he's not that like that in a way but that's the exception, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I think it, it, it's great that he can be so much better than most people in our world when it comes to toxic masculinity, when it comes to patriarchy, but then when it comes to race classism, he's, he's not there yet, mm-hmm. you know? And he has places that he needs to grow in. But I was also thinking about how... I wonder if viewers of the games, seeing him be like, ah, you can protect me, you know, like if that would make them judge Peta or dislike him Mm. in some way, because I think in, in our world, viewers can sometimes root for fierce women, like people who want to come off as more liberal or you know not as backwards as traditional values are uh, when it comes to gender dynamics specifically they might root for this fierce female character or whatever it is but still hate a male character when they don't conform to these toxic ideas of how a man should be better and stronger than women how they should protect them etc etc and a lot of that even though it's like oh yeah look at this strong fighter woman but like really it's still being misogynistic because women can be closer to how we think men should be but if men are closer to how we think women should be then that's a negative thing Mm -hmm. right it's like oh a woman can be great in a suit but if a man is going to wear a dress that is not acceptable you know and so yeah I was just kind of thinking about that in our own society that's something that when I was reading the books made me fall in love with PETA you know so quickly because he was anti a lot of this toxic masculinity but I wonder how that reaches other readers as well as how that would reach the people within the games. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, that, that kind of brings me to my first wonderment. Oh, okay. I was wondering if Gale exhibits any of those toxic masculinity types of issues. If he has mm. a kind of competitiveness with Katniss where mm. he doesn't like it when she does better than him and she feels like she has to be considered his ego at times because he's the person, the man who she spent the most time with by far, or the boy, of course. Besides her father, yeah. Besides her father. So yeah, I wonder if that's something that that she got some of those considerations through that. It Also, she absolutely could have gotten it just by being at school with boys and just, seeing just how they Just being interact. in the world. Yeah. Um, but... It did make me wonder if Gail had any of those those elements that um, 
that have affected her expectations of male ego, even if it isn't consciously coming out because she doesn't like putting Gail and Peta together in her head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because I, I feel like their relationship has been on pretty equal footing in terms of what they bring in in terms of what they bring back to their families Mm -hmm. they're both the providers for their families they're both each other's assurance if one of them was going to get raped as a tribute if one of them was going to get hurt or die or anything that the other would help take care of their family so yeah that i do wonder that too yeah or if if that was the case before they found their equilibrium before they found a mutual respect that they knew that they could rely on one another and that it was okay for them to have different strengths. Um, if maybe in the journey to get there, there were some struggles with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was also wondering, based off of Katniss's remark that Foxface would have probably been the smartest of all of the tributes, it made me start wondering why the Capitol doesn't have an IQ test or something like that as part of the games um mm. you know the, the the training center sessions in front of the game makers is the one time they get rated and while intelligence i think could be a factor there it seems like it's really skewed towards survival skills and so it made me think that you know is it that they don't actually want to have something that encourages savvy or cunning or clever thinking they don't want people to win by outsmarting each other because it's not as entertaining or because it also can breed them outsmarting the capital (laughs) so many other elements of the tributes are exploited as part of the games yeah um but we don't see this element do so And, and you know is there a intentional reason behind that tied to well it is easier to control the tributes when the way that we represent them is so divorced from their own intelligence. Mm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I wonder if part of it could be that the Capitol wouldn't want some sort of IQ test because then maybe some of the Capitol residents would want their own IQ tested and then if they were seen to be equal or less than some of the tributes, right? I didn't even think about that. You're absolutely right then what does that mean about this completely terrible skewed system of other or dehumanized district person versus capital? Yeah. The ability to throw a spear, you could write that off as being uncivilized. Mm. That if they're better than that than someone in the capital, then that's just because they are... Or anyone More, could train to be yeah, that. Exactly. You could if you wanted, but you don't want to. You yeah. want to sit around and eat shrimp cocktails. But having something that's more intrinsic and mm-hmm. seeing them as being, having more of that, that skill or value. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and if they tested people, then wouldn't they want to kill off the most intelligent mm. of the people? If they did IQ things, it would be complicated. Yeah, over a lot of kind of worms. That's really interesting, yeah. Hmm. As well as what would an acute test even look like since we already know that standardized tests are... Extremely racially and class biased? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But what what were you wondering about? 
Yeah, so I was actually wondering about PETA and if he has depression. Mm. Because once he found out that he and Katniss could both win, you'd think that he would want to. But he doesn't want her to risk her life. And he says, quote, don't die for me. You wouldn't be doing me any favors. And all my previous read-throughs, I had always assumed that was because he had feelings for Katniss. He loved her and he wanted her to survive. And without her, his life just wouldn't be as meaningful. You know, on my first read-through, I was like, ugh, that's a little sappy. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you were. (laughs) But this isn't the only time in in the whole series that he says something or expresses something kind of along those lines. And we also know that his family life is pretty miserable. And so... Yeah, I'm just, I'm kind of wondering about him and his mental health and his outlook on the world. Is he just self-aware so that he knows if she went to try to get this medicine for him and she died and somehow everyone else died and he survived that he would just have so much guilt for the rest of his life and what that would do to him. That You know, he's just too self-aware for it to be worth it Mm -hmm. or even that he knows what mentoring other people in the future would do to him psychologically or is it that he is okay with dying he's okay with it he's been unhappy before he entered the games and leaving the games wouldn't change anything about that if anything things would just be worse in certain ways you know Mm mm-hmm and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I just kind of wonder if he has a depression that I just didn't read before because I read more into his, like, romantic side. Even though, obviously, you and I both have a fairly close relationship with depression mm-hmm. where I can completely read it this other way, but I hadn't really until now. And so, yeah, now that just makes me have a lot of questions about him and some of his own thoughts and you know he is very self-deprecating in a lot of ways yeah i'm just i'm wondering what years of being around someone like his mother who is so cruel to him at times as well as physically abusive and him even being from the town having these different things quote-unquote going for him never having the self-esteem to go and talk to Katniss you know what these different things could mean for his kind of inner emotional life and so yeah I think I'll I'll be paying a little more attention to that moving on wow and I think I thought I related to Peter before <laughs> now we both relate to him now <laughs> yeah and now I do to an even further extent <laughs> But, I mean, it's realistic, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, also, like, how do you live in Penham in the districts and not be depressed to mm-hmm. some degree? But particularly when you have this life and even after he was reefed, knowing that one of his brothers who could have volunteered for him didn't, you know, it, it's it's all just a lot. Yeah. 
It is a lot. Oh, Peta, we get you. But now I'm worried about him. <laughs> you have no idea what happens to him. No, no clue. <laughs> well, on your worried note, should we go into our intentions? Sure. What's yours for these chapters? What are you taking away? What do you want to apply to your life? I mean, I, I think this isn't a new intention anyway for me, uh, but to just look to PETA as an example in those ways that he tries to be compassionate and that he does feel comfortable being outperformed and he doesn't have to feel challenged or um, competitive about these other kinds of things. <laughs> Not that you need to look to him for that. I feel like you <laughs> wrote the rule book of that. One of the reasons I liked you from the beginning is like you just have no machismo and you just don't care, which is good. That's true to an extent, yeah, but... I mean, it's, it's just true. <laughs> Everybody who's been listening to us for a while knows our dynamics. <laughs> yeah, I just, I still think that he is someone to, uh, to, yeah, maybe in times of frustration or just difficult times, thinking about, you know, how PETA could be. WWPD. Exactly. Yeah, how, how it can kind of be an inspiration. I, I wonder if that would be helpful for me. Hmm. Particularly because, yeah, after after your kind of discussion about him, you know, possibly having depression or experiencing those kinds of paradigms and, and ways of thinking about the world uh, and his place in it, I, I do relate to him even more. And so, yeah, thinking about how a character who I relate to that to that extent and who I admire to a great extent would engage with the difficult things that I engage with. Uh, yeah. Hmm. And see, I'm going to take a different intention for you, Chris. For me? Yep. You're intending something for me? Yep. Oh, great. <laughs> and it's that you take PETA's, he is not near there yet when it comes to class racism. <laughs> when he's being fragile, when he is being defensive and being like, he can be great in all of these areas, and that doesn't mean he's where it would be good for him to be in all areas. And that doesn't mean that we don't like him, that doesn't mean he's worthless, that doesn't mean he can't continue to grow. It just means he's not there yet, and that's where he's at. Maybe you could take that for yourself, Chris. You're right. <laughs> I should think about how great PETA is in times that I'm frustrated. <laughs> no, I'm saying anytime you're judging yourself, put that judgment on PETA and be like, oh no, but I love PETA. Oh, maybe I should be a little easier on myself. Well, I'll, think, I'll consider it. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I'm taking the intention for you. <laughs> Do you have one for yourself? Yeah, so I was thinking about the game makers controlling the weather and the drainage systems, etc. And just how nobody in the districts needs to starve to death. Like, look at the resources, look at the expense, look at the extravagance that they're spending on these things that are so violent meanwhile maintaining a violent system and like yes of course that's always been there but I don't know why for some reason 
the weather in particular hit me this time. (laughs) (laughs) Just like thinking about that and the control over these elements. Yeah, I was just thinking about air conditioning and heaters and having a roof that isn't leaking on me like them in this cave. So yeah, I was just I was just recognizing what a privilege having shelter is, having shelter from the elements. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my intention is just to continue to be thankful for that and recognize what a position I am in that other people around the world don't necessarily have. And not just around the world, but even in our own city don't have. And the significance that shelter provides. And that it should be a human right. Mm -hmm. I concur. It's good that you concur and you're not on the side of the Capitol on this one. Not on this one, no. Not on this one. Usually I'm definitely on the side of the Capitol. But this one, I'm just like... Particularly betting on children's lives who are trying to kill each other. 100% in on, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, But this one just... I don't know, there's something about it. It it just gets you different. (laughs) Okay, well, I think that will wrap up our conversation. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So next time, we are going to finish the last three chapters of this book. (gasps) I know, right? So chapter 25, 26, and 27, where we find out who the winner of the 74th Hunger Games is. (gasps) Exciting. Mm Mm-mm. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. You can find links to our social media and our website in the episode description, as well as a link to our Patreon at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. You can go there and become a supporter of the podcast, which gets you access to all sorts of extra content, including really great discussion posts about the chapters we're reading. And also an upcoming live Zoom meeting that we're going to have once we finish this book. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out. out.